welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week I've had absolutely zero sleep. Thankfully, being kept awake by a poorly dog is far less worrying than the thing that haunts the centre of this week's book. Our guest is Lee Mandelo, whose debut novel, Summer Suns, features one of the more distressing spectres of late. I'll leave you to discover more about that in our conversation and in the book in question, but suffice to say, you would not want this ghost at the foot of your bed in the night. Phantoms aside though, Summer Suns still packs a punch. Lee blends the two sides of Southern Gothic. On one hand, there's the supernatural. On the other, the very real drama of history and violence that permeates the genre and the region. The book also showcases modern masculinity in all its ugliness, with a few strands of beauty, and it refracts the whole thing through a dark version of the campus novel. In short, it's a lot. A sultry, sordid, messy and monstrous slice of Appalachian life. And it feels like a weighty book, one to be read slowly and unfolded, and at the very least it reminds you of the heat of summer as winters roll in around the world. Not forgetting you, Australia. Enjoy whatever blue skies you no doubt have coming soon. So come with me to the darkness at the edge of town. A strip of road arrows into the hollers and beautiful boys wait to run wild. Let's talk scared. So hi Lee, and a warm welcome to Talking Scared. Hello, nice to be here. Nice to have you. How, how, how are you? How's life? Pretty good. I'm in the end of writing my qualifying exams right now, these few weeks. So uh, thinking a lot, writing a lot, but soon to be free. <laughs> qualifying exams, is this in your, because you're doing a doctorate, right? Yes, for my PhD. So the fancy part where you get to prove you know all the things that you learned <laughs> all at once. <laughs> Yeah, well, we can talk about PhDs because it actually comes into into your books. We can get into that. And I mean, it's a bit of a running joke in this that I mention my own PhD about every 15 minutes uh, and people mock me <laughs> for it. So it'll be quite nice to talk about yours for a change. But first of all, where in the world do we find you today? Lexington, Kentucky. So about an hour outside of Louisville, which is our big city most people might be more familiar with. This is the thing where people from abroad say really ridiculous things about pop culture. <laughs> but I, I'm familiar with Lexington because I love the show Justified. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that, that is my sole kind of insight into your part of the world. So, um, well, well, that and now your book, because, well, I mean, location is often kind of an easy segue into the book that we talk about each week. And in your case definitely is because your novel it's your debut novel i believe summer suns mm-hmm. yeah it's it's sort of kind of inextricable from its southern setting and well well there's a lot of things packed into this novel a lot of things and a lot of themes um but i mean probably the most salient ingredient is the the rich legacy of southern gothic which i'm sure yes. we can dive deeply into because it's something i haven't really discussed much on the show so far that that subset of horror southern gothic it's quite different we can get into that but as ever, we need to set the table, so to speak, to begin. Can you kick us off by telling us a little bit about Summer Suns? Yeah, so the book opens with our protagonist, Andrew, is about to go to Vanderbilt in Tennessee to join his best friend, except 
his best friend has recently died, presumably of suicide. That's what everyone thinks. But he has a quite literal terrible haunting going on <laughs> from his best friend's ghost and is fairly sure he didn't kill himself. So he's in just admired in grief and trying to deal with what has happened and what secrets he doesn't know and what secrets he has inherited from his dead friend and goes to Vanderbilt anyway to look into what has happened while he wasn't there. And things go poorly for the most part. <laughs> yeah, things do go quite poorly. It's a pretty bleak grieving process he goes through. Um, I realise, by the way, I've already made an, an egregious error because I was saying that the book is rich in, in, in Kentucky backdrop. And of course, it's set in Tennessee. As I explained off air, I haven't had much sleep. We'll have to get through this together. But apologies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, where do we start with a novel like this? Because I say there's so much in it. I mean, I talked about setting the table and to extend that culinary metaphor a bit further. You could say that Summer Suns is kind of a, a southern feast of, of many different ingredients. There are scenes of street racing and a kind of rabid violence, and they sit right next to these scenes of academic intrigue, and it's all wrapped in this gothic blanket. And that's before we even get to the, the psychosexual elements of the story. So there's a, there's a lot in here. Let's start by talking about how the hell those disparate strands come together in your imagination. <laughs> yeah. So I think part of it is that I am just a deeply promiscuous reader. <laughs> and that is a word I use on purpose for that because I like so many different genres of fiction and nonfiction. I love poetry and also my experience growing up in rural Kentucky and then going into academia. So there are definitely elements that are that semi-autobiographical drawing from life about what is it like to be like a masculine presenting person in the rural Appalachian South who then wants to get into academia or who has all of these other lives outside of a professional sort of pretending to middle-classness space and then smushing those all together into one book. <laughs> yeah, as you said, there's an awful lot in here about masculinity and different forms and different performances of it, which I found really interesting. I mean, when I was at uni, one of the courses that I loved it really spoke to me I don't really know why it was I did this course all about presentations and ideals of masculinity in the fan de sequel in in the sort of the late 1890s in the in England you know people like mm -hmm. Oscar Wilde and stuff like that and 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 yeah it seems like you're doing something similar in this book in that you're taking all these different frameworks of masculinity and 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 smashing them together often in in singular figures who who perform as you know scholarly academic kind of beta males for want of a better word and then the, in, in their nightlife they're living this incredibly alpha male lifestyle of of fast cars hard drinking and and violence i mean does any of that any of that kind of performativity and and, and different styles of masculinity is that something that you saw growing up that you experienced growing up is it come from does it come from a personal place yeah, I definitely think so. And I also, you know, do gender studies. That's the PhD that I'm working on. <laughs> so I'm thinking of it sort of from the personal perspective and also an academic one. And I think that does kind of come through in the book like you were picking up on there. Uh, but I think for personally, just as a like queer trans man or <laughs> whatever we want to use the labeling on there, I think my relationship to masculinity through my life has had to be very complicated. Mm -hmm. Like if you've chosen to join the team on some tier or another, like there's a requirement to really think about 
what parts of masculinity are seductive, what parts you want to play with, what parts you feel called to, and how ethical or not some of those might be. I have spent plenty of time with packs of boys like the packs of boys in this book, and there's a lot of intimacy that you can have in masculine spaces that is bound up in a lot of questions of like repressed homoerotic desire and violence and like a very deep closeness. But I've also dated men in those spaces who don't subscribe necessarily to the repression parts of the toolkit. So it's sort of looking at what does it mean to be a queer man in the South, in Appalachia? You could be a Sam figure or you could be a Riley figure or there's Ethan. Or as you were saying, there's lots of different modes and modalities of what it means to be masculine and what it means to be like in kinship with other men that I also wanted to bring women in and how men treat women in those spaces, because that is itself a problem also. So there's all of those things going together, I think. One of the things that I found interesting, and, and this, I apologize, because obviously I'm, I'm in a weird way kind of analyzing you, you here, despite not knowing <laughs> you. So if I get this entirely wrong, you know, apologies, it's, it's well intended. But obviously I've read a lot of the blogs you wrote for Tor, the stuff about being you know, having a queer identity inside speculative fiction and, and that kind of stuff. So I've kind of got a sense of your journey. Um, I hate that word journey. It's such a trite <laughs> word, but you, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. And as obviously from, from overseas, from over here in the UK, we have this idea of Appalachia as a, a place that is, I suppose, mired in... Shall we say unprogressive views? Yeah, now that's a very un, that's a very kind of reductive way to put it. Because obviously cultures are diverse. I'm sure there are many many different views. But the idea you have of it is of a very unprogressive culture in the main. Uh, so I was expecting, knowing your identity as a trans man who grew up in that area, I was expecting this book to be a lot more about prejudice and a lot more about the horror of masculinity than it is it it actually seems to me to present on the whole quite a rewarding quite an inclusive and, and and quite you know positive view of how men conduct themselves yeah i think that is certainly something that was purposeful <laughs> in the way that i wanted to look at a lot of the things that had happened in my life and that i see in the world around me and think about holding particularly white masculinity to account in a sense, but not just as a source of horror is something we could maybe just do better than we are currently doing it. So I wanted there to be a sense of almost hopefulness, but also that it's hard work. So I would say that probably no character in the book gets let off the hook necessarily for bad behavior or mistreating other people or the ways in which they are deeply, deeply selfish. Even the characters who people most like, like Riley, have their flaws in interacting with other people that come from those experiential places of their identities. But at the same time, I want us to have a chance to improve upon the world that we are in. And I think that was part of the journey of the book. I think I wrote in the little... uh like bookseller's letter for the advanced review copies that I was hoping to write an understanding of how men could love each other without just ruining their lives. And I, I'm still invested in that project. Like I want to see how we could do better about those things. Well, yeah, you and me both. I think we all need to <laughs> kind of, I spent a lot of time on Twitter, just bewildered and despairing of 
of, of men. Yeah. You know, but but then, <laughs> then in my personal life, I know, I'm, for example, I'm a member of a running club. Um, and it's a weird thing that reading this, reading your book and, and this, you know, this, this street racing culture and, and this, you know, this little kind of clique they have. In a weird way, despite the fact that I can't even drive, <laughs> I saw <laughs> my male friendships in that from my running club, in which I, 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 you know, am part of a, a group of friends in which our friendship is predicated on competition. You know, each weekend we we, we go to a, a race and we try and destroy each other in the race, but there is literally no chest beating alpha male competition of any kind in our interactions between each other. So it does feel like the the presentation of men that men often make for themselves as well. I'm not saying, oh, aren't we a put upon gender? You know, it's it's men's <laughs> fault. But the way they portray themselves in public spaces and in social media particularly, I think it belies a much more positive, as you say, intimate way of interacting. You know, I think the alpha male thing is actually far less common than we're all led to believe it is. Yeah, I definitely would say so. And I think that it's, uh, one of those ways to draw out the, the feminist theory credentials, whatever, for a second, that patriarchy does a great deal of damage to men also, <laughs> yeah, is yeah. sort of that denial of intimacy or that you aren't allowed to have close friendships or they have to be boundaried in certain ways that I think particularly queer men sort of are forced <laughs> early on, depending, to do better about because there is no presumption that you're going to dump all of that intimacy and emotion on a singular woman who will become your wife. You know, <laughs> there's no one to pour that onto. You sort of have to deal with it amongst yourselves. And that does often sometimes lead to misogyny in queer communities, absolutely a thing. But I think it wedges a door a little bit open to think on purpose about how you care about other men and can care for each other and also the people around you who are not men. That's such an interesting idea. I'd never thought about that, of course, because like, you know, straight cis men, we get to just go, oh, we're we're like hunter gatherers until we meet a wife and we can put all our intimacy and weakness into that one person. Mm -hmm. But that's not an angle that's available to to non straight. I'd never considered that before. That's really interesting. I'm going to go and think about that. Um <laughs> Right, I, right. I've realised we've jumped in right at the deep end here with some quite intense chat about gender and masculinity. We are going to get to ghosts and haunted houses, people, I promise. But, you know, <laughs> that's not necessarily the part of the book that's actually the most interesting is it's this stuff. Um, right. Let's go back. Let's, let's get back on track because I've taken us off down all kind of weird angles there. Um, we've laid the components that make up this story. Street racing, masculinity, ghosts, curses, academia. Let's work through them kind of bit by bit. Let's start with the one that you've already referenced or that seems to be at least the most biographical, the academic stuff. So uh, yeah, you said you're working on, on a PhD in gender studies. First of all, how's it going? It's going pretty good. I'm in the third year, so doing the exams and proposing my dissertation. But I had also gotten to this point after taking a long break from academia. So I'm significantly older than most of my cohort mates. I'm in my 30s because uh, I had taken time away from an English degree and then a comparative literature degree. <laughs> and I think that my relationship to academia is fairly critical, as the book probably makes obvious. It's a very classist set of institutions, whether in the U.S. or abroad. There are a lot of things going on with race, in particular in Southern mm -hmm. universities, that I think I wanted to deal with in the book. 
in the ways that white students are privileged over students of color, et cetera. So that's all in there in my my academic stuff. I'm here, but I don't know how I feel about it. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, I talk about classist. I I went to a university where I quite literally lived in a castle. <laughs> it was in a in a town in the UK called Durham, uh, and I lived in the turret of the castle. And twice a week, I wore a a, a tuxedo to go to, to dinner. Um, and it's only now when I look back that I realise. Yeah, I, I was actually kind of part of a cohort of the very people that I now look at and think you're ruining the world. <laughs> you know, <what> I, mean? <laughs> but I was utterly oblivious to it when I was 18 and thought it was all great fun. With academia, I, I can actually think of quite a few gothic or horror, however you want to call it, of novels in that world that take place on campus. You've got probably Donna Tartt's The Secret History is probably the standout. Yeah. You know, there's Christopher Yates's Black Chalk. There's a really weird book called The Lecturer's Tale by James Hines. But on the whole, Gothic and the Academy, they don't seem to have overlapped very much. You know, if you get away from like Lovecraft's kind of Miskatonic University and all that into into contemporary literature, Gothic and academia don't seem to have much to do with each other. And that seems odd to me because from my experience, academic life is overflowing with the potential for horror and sinister plots. Yes, I also think in terms of the gothic as a genre is doing so much with class usually and the ideas of inheritance or gender or haunted houses and spaces that you're going into where you shouldn't be and there's some madness and research usually goes into it to figure out what's wrong with the house that is a campus like (laughs) what about these historical campuses i feel like are equally haunted by those things and particularly by institutions of class and inherited wealth and all of those things that you see in the gothic and also to your point about like yeah if you go to school in an older like a place that has a castle for example or if you've been to Vanderbilt's campus it has that sense of having been built by old money which in the American South only really has one source which is chattel slavery so it's exceptionally dark if you think about it for even a second like where your feet are treading on most of these university campuses. So I'm also surprised there isn't more academic gothic. And I did see a, a tweet about Summer Suns the other day that was uh, that getting at dark academia is just academia. Like all academia is a bit <laughs> dark academia. <laughs> and I do agree with that. <laughs> I mean, I never experienced anything like the cutthroat politics that your protagonists experience. But I'm aware it's happened. You know, I, I've seen people who have who have done naughty things and, and really stepped on people's toes. And and it's not it's not the maddest idea to think that something like that could lead to more sinister kind of horror inflected things like murder and stuff. You know, it, it, it's not a, a ridiculous avenue to go down. I, I've read far mm-hmm. more kind of ridiculous plots than that. Also, the thing about academia, as you just say, like, you know, doing that research into the history of a, of, a, of a house and stuff, like it is just a campus. You use academia in this book as a way to unveil the kind of central mystery and, and folklore research plays a huge part. Now, I know you said you're doing uh, gender studies, but is that folkloric root anything that you've had, had any interest in yourself from a research perspective? 
Uh, yeah, I think because my original background before moving to gender studies was in English and comparative literature with some humanities and philosophy and on the side. So just truly all the stuff no one can talk to you about like a normal person anymore after you've been in academia. <laughs> that doing that kind of research is very fun for me. And also, I mean, southern the southern U.S. and Appalachia are just chock full of urban legends and mysteries and hauntings and superstitions. It was something that I didn't really think heavily about until getting into college initially, but that coming from that background, I would label myself an atheist, whatever, but I'm also deeply superstitious in ways that I was simply raised to be superstitious by a family who had all of these deep-seated superstitions. And you still will run up on those occasionally in just reading research about Appalachia, where I will hit a reference to something like, don't sweep a broom over your feet, and just be like, yes, of course, that is correct. And then have to pause and be like, wait, <laughs> maybe that's a little particular. <laughs> so yeah, I do enjoy that sort of research and what it tells us about you know, our culture, where we've come from geographically also. Yeah, definitely. The ge geographically, definitely. And that brings us to Southern Gothic. Before we get into that, though, I will just say, if you do end up leaving academia and thinking, I can't talk to anyone now about this stuff because normal people don't talk about this kind of stuff, I recommend starting a podcast where you talk to <laughs> other horror authors. It's, it's literally why I did this, and it, it's, it's kind of scratching that itch quite a bit. So that's, that's a good way <laughs> to deal with that. Uh, but right, yeah, okay. So Southern Gothic, the thing that is haunting the backdrop of all of this. Um, I'm going to throw this back on you a little bit now, because I've got my own ideas about what the term means, but that's not really, really interesting. I'm, I'm interested in your take on the subject. So first of all, I suppose it's, it's a three-part question. One, do you agree that Summer Suns is Southern Gothic? If so, what is Southern Gothic to you, and how does Summer Suns fit into that tradition? Ooh, that's a fun one. So... Have at it. I think... One of its genetic lineages is Southern Gothic. I think I did a bunch of different things rather purposefully with the narrative structure of Summer Sons, and the Gothic is one of those. You also have like the psychological thriller aspects, uh, queer literature, coming of age stories. There's a bunch of stuff that's weaving into it. But I think I would agree in terms of the when you have to pick a marketing category, because you simply do. Southern Gothic, I think, gives the vibe <laughs> the most, because I think, definitionally, Southern Gothics are very much about the vibes. You sort of can define it by accreting a bunch of things together that you associate with it, I think. So the Gothic, for me, if you're going further back, is a continental European-like fiction situation. But then when you transport that from manor houses and whatnot over to the American South, you're shifting to plantations and to very different places of communal haunting and these deep, dark communal secrets. Usually there are elements of gaslighting or people hiding things from one another or a family did something 10 generations ago that is still haunting the current generation. And I think that's a unique thing in the American Southern Gothic tradition is that sense of history being the haunting in the text. Like history is in, in and of itself a sort of ghost that is always still sort of living like a revenant in the background. And I think that is what I was doing with it in terms of Summer Sons. 
<laughs> okay, okay. And what what then, without giving spoilers away, what is the history that is that is haunting this this landscape and this this world? This is one of the fun like craft parts of this book is that mm-hmm. Andrew, as our protagonist, who's our close focus, doesn't notice most of these things. So in the writing of it, it was a very delicate balance between what would he not notice or care about versus what the text wants you to notice or care about in the world around him. And one of those things is money. So when Eddie dies and leaves him his estate, he is from an old Tennessee family. He's a millionaire and he leaves him this money pretty early on. You find this out. And then later as the book goes on, he has to begin to think about where do I think that money came from? And it is quite obviously from legacies of slavery and the oppression of black Americans in the South. And he has inherited this money and doesn't really know what to do or think about that. And I think that's one of the ways of sort of holding white masculinity, as I'd mentioned, accountable for where we participate in these histories. Like I'm not from a rich family, but I'm also cognizant of, for example, Vanderbilt or a lot of these universities with huge endowments in the South come from deeply questionable backgrounds where if you traced where the money comes from these old families, it almost always comes from the running of plantations and the owning of human bodies and labor. And it's awful. So how do we deal with that as a culture moving forward that this is where our wealth comes from is this like racial capitalism concept? Big answer. (laughs) No, no, no. I'm, I'm just kind of thinking on my feet here a little bit, which I'm not very good at. When you said before that, you know, you think the unique thing about Southern Gothic is that it is about history itself is the ghost. My initial reaction was to think, well, I disagree because that's an almost exact description of European Gothic. You know, the, this idea that some primal sin has been committed and, and you can never escape it. What You know, the sins of the father being visited upon the few generations forever. But I think where I do agree with you is that the, the, the difference is... In European Gothic, or even, you know, other contemporary British Gothic, that idea of the haunting of the past, or the past being a ghost or a revenant, that past never actually existed. So when you go back to, like, 18th century British Gothic, like Mistress of Udolpho or something like that, the the past that is coming back into the present is this, this fictitious Middle Ages of knights and courtly maidens that never, ever actually existed. So you're, you're being haunted by something that was always a fabrication. Whereas in the South, in, in the American South, the haunting lineage is very, very real and much more horrific because of it and inescapably horrific because of all the things you've just said. So it feels like much more of an authentic haunting, if that makes sense. Yeah. Also, it's so recent in history. I think there's part of that, too, is that sense of like, how far back is that historical haunting coming from? Is it a like a fantasy of a long ago past or is it something that happened approximately 150 years ago? Yeah. <laughs> like it's very close. Temporally. Like ludicrously recently. And, you know, I mean, when you're, yeah. it feels like it, it feels like that world that that kind of antebellum South should be you know, the 15th century. It feels like it should be just thrown so far back into history, but then you realise, no, no, it's, it was terrifyingly recent and we've still not quite sorted it out. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it's interesting that you brought up race quite a bit in this conversation already because I, one of the things I wanted to ask you, and, and you've already kind of proved me wrong, 
I was going to say to you that, you know, race is a core issue in Southern Gothic for obvious reasons. But I was going to say it doesn't feel like it's very present in your novel. So there are some suggestions that academic politics may be racially influenced. And there's the old plantation as a role in the supernatural side of the, of the narrative. But I was going to say that race historically or in the present plays quite a little role in, in the story. You seem to think that's not the case, that it's, it's just more built into the fabric of it all. Yeah, so that is, we'll see how, how much I achieved on this, but a thought that I was going for uh, is something that I think, particularly as we're discussing representational politics, these things in fiction more often, a lot of white writers aim to build diversity, almost do like a checklist of here's people I should show on the page, but never really look at whiteness very critically. You know, it, it kind of remains this unmarked neutral thing that white characters are the center of the universe and other characters are sort of add-ons. But one of the things that I was hoping to get at through critiquing a white male protagonist in a lot of ways through his lack of perception is that thing where whiteness is not actually neutral. Like he perceives himself as the center of the universe, but the ways that he is interacting with particularly characters of color around him, like they have their own stories going on entirely for example west in the space of the academy mm -hmm. that he's not really privy to and also doesn't care to dig into and i think that's one of the you know great sins that if to go back to that that we still sort of commit even in progressive spaces is not wanting to hold whiteness as a form of racialization under the lens to look at what does whiteness do like culturally specifically and I think that was something that I wanted to dig at in there was whiteness itself as sort of a not unmarked state that like Andrew's whiteness in part contributes to his entire perception of the world around him, if that makes sense. It does make sense. So it's more that you're, you are addre addressing race by not overtly addressing race, mm -hmm. almost making the, the, the lack of engagement with that topic the, the point. Am, am I right in... That Andrew is so blinkered by his own self-centeredness that he wouldn't even think to consider a different racial perspective, and therefore it doesn't it, it doesn't come up as a topic in the narrative in the same way. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But then, if you look at the plot, like uh, avoiding spoilers, mm -hmm. who are the villains? Like who does what and for what reason? Like that's I think where it sort of comes. Ideally, I hope <laughs> full circle to show what the book thinks almost more than what Andrew thinks. But again, that's a very tricksy, like, middle space to try to thread. <laughs> this show partners with Novelic, the brand new book app that's designed to help you find your next favourite read. There are no reviews, no star ratings, none of that stuff that awful people use to break the system. Instead, it's just pure recommendations based on your tastes, your reading history, and what other people in the community think you might like. The app's been newly updated so it runs faster and smoother. It's still great for genre fans with curated TBR lists of all kinds, but now they've added a children's bookshelf so you can keep track of the books you want to read with your kids. I'd recommend churning through The Hungry Hungry Caterpillar and getting straight into King's It. Your kids will love that tale of brave boys and brave girls having the summer of their life. You can download Novelic for free on Apple or Android. Come and find your next great fright.
let's talk about Andrew, right? Because mm-hmm. this is the part where I may say something you don't like, but I've got to be honest, you know mm-hmm. what I mean, with these things. I've already said I like the book, but Andrew, the protagonist, at one point he is described by someone as, quote, a selfish, entitled disaster of a person, which is a fantastic way to put someone down. I mean, sick burn, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and, and that moment made me want to cheer because I think he is. I can't think of many characters who, in my opinion, remain so unredeemed for so long. So even at the end, when, again, no spoilers, when one of his friends nearly dies, Andrew's only response is to say, well, so did I. And he seems to have such little empathy or care for anyone else. And it's only in the very closing moments that there's any sense that he recognises the need to meet people halfway to reciprocate care. Am I wrong? Do you like him or or am I, you know, how do our opinions on Andrew meet, I suppose, is what I'm asking. I do think you're right about who he is as a person. And I think that I have a certain amount of almost tenderness for that, like, age 22, deeply, deeply traumatized and repressed queer boy in the South. Like, he behaves very badly, just extremely badly to himself, to other people. But I also think, especially from the beginning, there is no other way that he could be. And I do think that some of the like therapeutic processing or trauma or healing, if we want to use that word, though I'm a little suspicious of it most of the time, and learning to form reciprocal relationships, especially at that age, takes a lot of time and mess and effort that I kind of want to give room to. So I think he is equally a deeply frustrating and upsetting person to be in his head for an entire book, but someone you kind of begin, I hope, to root for by the end to do better and to have a sense that he can do better and that that is part of what I wanted to get at. And as he begins to form relationships that aren't extremely codependent and really, really psychosexually questionable, like as things go on is learning how to be a person who is in community with other people. But I also didn't want to make that seem easy because I genuinely think it's not easy. Maybe I need to be more empathetic then because I hadn't really thought about what had happened to him coming in before the narrative starts. And obviously that, as with all good gothics, there is there is serious nastiness in his past. Um I think I probably treated him too much as a, a blank slate on the page and, and found him quite unforgivable. Um, and I, I honestly kind of breathed a sigh of relief in that very final passage when the word reciprocation is mentioned. Um, it's the perfect word. Um, and I was like, oh, okay, there is hope for this guy. There is, there is hope that he may change because it felt like you took a real gamble on how long you, you allowed him to be quite unlikable (laughs) (laughs) yes (laughs) if you can believe it the early drafts he was worse like that (laughs) there's definitely feedback on the rough initial first draft of like i get what you're trying to do here but it is punishing to read (laughs) that's a great word yeah it is punishing yeah (laughs) Yeah. it's it's kind of like it's that thing about reading a book where you're really really engaged with the story but at the same time having such a hard time with the character what I'd compare it to, this is a really strange comparison, um, the movie The Wolf of Wall Street, where you do not need to have a character that you like to find a movie entirely engaging. But 
it is also a very, very different relationship with a story if you don't like the character. So yes, yeah, so I, I was like, wow, he's taken a risk on this one. And then at the end, when there was some sense of progression, I was like, oh, okay, right. That's the landing. I get that now, then it works. But yeah, I was holding my breath for you. I really was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I also think there's something too that I didn't mention that just came back to me about seeing how people respond to him depending on their own queer journey to go back to the word that we don't like, <laughs> but hmm. that particularly for queer men who had a very uh, messy approach to figuring out that they were attracted to men or wanted to have relationships with them that were not these intimate friendships, but were more than that. And sort of the damage that you can do to yourself and other people trying to avoid that. And I think that's part of the contrast between him and having a supportive queer friend group, like throughout as he realizes that's what he has and starts to deal with those things. And I think people find him infinitely sympathetic on that tier if it is something familiar to them, even if you wince when you think about it in yourself, you know, or you're like, oh, I sure did do that. That wasn't great behavior and trying to work through how all of that repression and trying to hold yourself back means you can't form any relationships well to some extent. So I think that's in there too, that it is like a queer coming of age in its way. And some of that is about messiness. I think we're very attached to the idea of like wholesome, soft queers in our media at the moment. And most people aren't all the way through wholesome, soft, nice people, especially not as 20 year olds. <laughs> I had this conversation with some with an author. I can't remember who. Um, I've spoken to so many people now where someone said, like, you know, they are sick of exactly what you said, the idea of soft, gentle queerness being the, the only palatable form of queer identity that, you know, basically allow queer people to be villains. I can't remember <laughs> who I had the conversation with. But, yeah, I think there is also there's, there's unquestionable merit in that in that project as well because... Otherwise, you're just further ghettoizing identities. So, I mean, sexuality, now we've reached the topic, it's, I would say, is at the core of this story more than anything else. I don't mean sexuality in terms of actual sex. I mean more identity. It, it, you could argue that the entire novel is a coming out story, albeit a horrendously tortured one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think that is said one of the genealogies of the book is like a particular kind of queer literature that is about dealing with your very specific located experience of queerness. Uh, and you'll notice, I mean, going through the book that most people don't use particular very strict category labels for themselves. I think at the ending of the book, Andrew still wouldn't know what to, to call himself in a political sense, but is coming around to the fact that he predominantly prefers to have relationships with men. Mm -hmm. What does that mean for him? And I think that reflects my own experiences of, you know, coming to terms with sexuality as a child of the 90s in the rural South, that most people didn't have particular words that they were very attached to outside of queer or gay or a series of slurs. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> like, I think that's in there too, is kind of wanting to deal with identity but as a very fluid thing that identity changes over time that your conception of who you are or what you do can change over time depending on the people you meet and the space you have to explore those things 
like if Eddie had lived at the beginning of the book. I don't really know what Andrew's emotional and sexual journey would have been if he had stayed in the space that he was in previously, which was just a very unexamined, deeply intimate queer relationship with no physical component in some sense. So yeah, I think it's messy. There's a lot of that in the narrative, but I think it's a core of the book is him coming to terms with those things. But it's messy in quite an authentic way. I mean, obviously, I remember my 20s and I remember life being very confusing. And, and that's without the the added complications. I'm to think like, what am I? How do I fit? What terminology would you use? You know, it's just you get across that the idea of your 20s just being this quite bleak period of like <laughs> flailing your arms around for any kind of traction with with other human beings. Yeah, that comes across quite clearly. I'm not going to spoil this here um, because parts of the book hinge on this. But let's just say that there are implications, whether true or false, that Andrew and Eddie may have harboured feelings that went beyond friendship or brotherhood. So they've got a quite an odd and uncanny relationship. So they are friends who become adoptive siblings and they may or may not be more. You keep it very blurry or perhaps use your word messy as to whether the lines are. Now, I may have read this wrong. So apologies that this is actually quite a, a crass question. But implied incest is a recurrent trope in Southern Gothic writing. And I wondered if you were perhaps alluding to that particular strand, but in a new queer perspective that hadn't been done before. Yes. <laughs> so sort of a two-parter on that is that that is absolutely so much a part of the genre. But I think where it comes from that I find very interesting is the, the way that kinship is actually a lot weirder and less direct and less categorical than we want to pretend it is. So they're obviously not technically related, but due to Eddie's parents passing as a teenager, he's legally adopted. So legally, on paper, they are related. But then again, they've been best friends forever and have this very particular tie that I'll try not to spoiler also around mm -hmm. the supernatural and their history together that uh, is almost closer than blood siblings in a way. So what is closeness? And I think particularly as a queer theory person, that's something I like to look at is sort of pulling apart some of those social boundaries that we think are very settled and very secure and looking at what does kinship actually mean? Like, what does it mean to be related to someone or in relation to someone else? What are those structures look like? And also their relationship is deeply unhealthy and codependent. So that is part of it too, is kind of looking at what does it mean to be queer and in love with your best friend when that best friend is pretty openly homophobic, at, especially as a teenager. So sort of dealing with all of those things at once through the lens of, yes, you expect in a gothic to have a little little twinge of the, the taboo, the forbidden in that way with siblings and some such. <laughs> so what, what you've done there basically is updated a, a very key gothic, southern gothic trope for a new culture and a, a new cultural ideal of queerness and otherness and things like that. And that I think that's great. I think anything that kind of takes tropes and plays them, big fan. But I, how, do I, how do I phrase this question? I think it, it's best done with a quote. So there's one point in this book where the professor who was Eddie's supervisor and she wants to be Andrew's supervisor, 
She's interested in the folklore of the local area. And she says, quote, this land and the stories people tell about it are fascinating. Hauntings, massacres, dark magic, all that bloody business lingers underneath the surface of respectability. It's a grim, delicious contradiction. Now, for a start, I think grim, delicious contradiction is one of the best definitions of gothic I can imagine. Um, and I'm going to use that in future. But <laughs> it seems to me that in your very contemporary narrative, you similarly juxtapose this respectable surface of scholarship and things like that with this nocturnal culture of car racing, wild parties, promiscuous sex and thinly restrained violence, which you could, I suppose, call, again, bloody business. So am I right there? Are you working on your own grim, delicious contradiction between these disparate elements of the narrative? I do think so. And I also think that's something that I just enjoy narratively. <laughs> I like to feel bad. I joke sometimes, like not bad in the negative sense, but in the that little bit of discomfort or it is grim and a little awful, but it's also maybe sexy or very interesting. So I did want to sort of update those things. And I also think it speaks to a particular experience that, I mean, I had in graduate school part one before quitting and coming back of people who had not traditionally been in academia. So a lot of first generation students like myself, including a, a boyfriend at the time who was there and getting into these higher institutions of learning. So you'd be teaching during the day and then, you know, going out to race your car and smoke four blunts at night. Like that was just sort of a part of it. And there was a real like, this is the sort of bad boy pleasure of knowing that you could put your button up on and go to school in the morning and then be who you really were at night. And I think some of that at that age especially comes from a real conflict between am I betraying my roots by going into this elite institution? Like, look at me, I can still do all of these things. And the uglier sides of like very, as you said, alpha masculinity in that way that scholarship isn't seen as a particularly masculine or alpha thing to do. So are you also trying to reclaim some of your physicality at the same time that it's not just books, I can do this too. I was very into weightlifting and all of those things also. So I think it's a, it's all goes together. It's a little bit of on purpose updating and a little bit of what did this look like that I found really fascinating when I was in graduate school part one that I hadn't really seen reflected in like Southern Gothic or dark academia books that are set entirely from the perspective of being a middle to upper class person. Like how does that get complicated if you're in those spaces, but aren't one of those people? That was a very long answer, but yes. no, it was, it, was very, it was a very long question. I ask massively convoluted questions. I know I do. So thank you for answering it so articulately. <laughs> what it felt like you were doing was marrying a old style idea of what Southern Gothic was. All, all the things we've discussed, curses, plantations, you know, old money, all of that stuff. It, that to me is the, the old traditional idea of Southern Gothic, where I think these days we've got a different kind of Southern Gothic, probably with something like Flannery O'Connor as the hinge point, maybe, you know. Mm. Um, is, is that the right name, Flannery O'Connor? Yes, right yeah. That? yeah. Feels like that's the hinge point into this very modern Southern Gothic, which is rarely to do with the supernatural and is to do with violence and often toxic masculinity and and aberrant sexuality. I'm thinking about writers like Donald Ray Pollock, who wrote um, 
knock them stiff and he wrote um the devil all the time which is a great there's a great film adaptation on netflix they're southern gothics that have got nothing to do with the numinous or the supernatural they're about the cold hard brutality of everyday life in a patriarchal rural working class environment and it felt like you were basically marrying those two kinds of southern gothic into this one story yes yeah i also think of uh this came out while I was originally drafting because, you know, publishing takes forever. So does writing. But True Detective's first season played with the idea that there would be the supernatural involved. That, like, you know, spoiler alert, ultimately it isn't. And I kind of did the opposite in some ways. Like, it's very clear from the beginning that ghosts are real. There are ghosts. <laughs> that is a thing that is happening. But also looking at what that would really mean in that context to have ghosts still, but also all of this generational and particular violence and to some extent like the deliciousness of violence occasionally interpersonally when it is a little consensual and weird there is a lot of intense physicality between Andrew and other men that he clearly finds pleasurable because it is how he's allowed to interact with other men and I wanted to nudge at that a little bit also. Well, I'm glad you said that, because that's a question I actually wrote down. I don't write down many, but I've written this one down because I thought I mustn't forget to ask. I can't think of any other novel that I've read recently that fixates to such an extent on the body, and in particular on the sensation of touch. Because normally in literature, I would say sight is the primary sense, followed by, you know, hearing, and then smell and touch probably take joint third place. In, the, in your novel, Touch kind of beats them all off. Far more than what he sees or what he, you know, smells, he, he navigates this world through through Touch. And it's both a positive and negative thing, whether it's a caress or an accidental brushing of the hand or this violent, ghostly possession, which is quite a different form of possession. It's much more physical than, than we're used to. Like, why is touch so important to you as a writer, or at least as the writer of this novel? Ooh, I think, so a few answers that I'll try to merge together on this one. Uh, one of my scholarly pursuit interests, backgrounds, whatever we want to call it, is affect theory. Mm-hmm. So looking at kind of the ways that emotion and feeling are very bodily processes is one very simple definition of it that I'm sure somewhere out there is shaking their head and saying, but you didn't mention, and we're just going to move on from that. (laughs) But the way that our bodies teach us the world, and particularly I think that comes up in queerness a great deal, where in, for example, cruising, like for other men, you may not speak. There might not be any need to speak. If you're in a public space, there might just be a glancing contact and that can contain a whole message about your needs and desires and that comes from originally you know a need for social safety that these things couldn't be said out loud but I think that because prose is written so it is verbal in its own sense it's very hard to communicate those bodily experiences that teach us about our everyday life I mean everything we do is boundaried by touch more than anything else all day every day but we don't write about it very easily because it's hard to cross that gap. And even in revising the book, a great deal of what I did was trying to pay attention to scenes where it felt like folks were only speaking, maybe, you know, and to think, well, what would our bodies be doing 
if this was a real moment that I was living in, like, what would I be noticing about their hands or would their body heat be close to me? And how would I process that? Because I think we're aware of those things all the time, but they're very challenging to write. So I wanted to try to get at that visceral experience of emotions and the experience of grief being very physical for a lot of people in a way that we don't talk about or the experience of sexual desire, whether he knows that's what to call it or not for part of the book, like his desire to experience physical intimacy, even if it's painful, or even because it's painful with other men, is something that I found very interesting to try to put on the page instead of, I think you see it in a film easier, you can imagine it. But then prose gives you the opportunity to describe what it feels like to do those things. And it's a a strange kind of result of that is that because prose i think neglects the sense of touch it, it doesn't you know evoke it enough because you go to such lengths to evoke it it ends up making everything erotic in this novel <laughs> you know even things that I, I don't think are supposed to be or um or or are not you know speaking to the erotic impulse in the novel where some things definitely are everything is heightened to this really sensual erotic pitch which again ties back into i think that classic southern gothic vibe as you put it right at the start where everything is ripe and rich and sensual yes and i also think you know everyone reflects the world as they see it like that's something that i enjoy about the world in general like i think uh particularly there is a path i suspect for a lot of queer folks who initially learn a lot about repressing their desire or this or that in society who really turn the corner and go hardcore the other direction. And I am one of those. Like I frequently joke my degree is in horny studies. Like (laughs) what does it mean to desire? And that's not only sexual desire, but just erotic writ large that I think people are more driven by that need for sensuality and experience than we like to admit. And that's outside of sexualities, like an asexual person, an allosexual person, either way, you could have very intense physical reactions to food or drinking or being around a friend, et cetera, that we, I think, tend, particularly in Anglophone Western culture, to try to boundary off like a forbidden thing because it feels good. And I really wanted in life and in prose and in academic work to think about desire as sort of a way of knowing the world. Like that desiring things might be a way to understand everything a little bit. And that's just a very personal idiosyncratic thing. But also, yeah, I think you see more of men's bodies being observed in this book than I encounter in most books. Andrew Mm -hmm. is very much paying attention to other men's bodies, even when he doesn't notice it. And to finish off talking about the book... It is a podcast about horror, so I'm going to ask at the very end about the dark spirit that is tormenting Andrew and has been tormenting Eddie in the past. Um, I think I need to reread the novel to get a complete sense of what precisely it is, because it's more than just just Eddie's ghost. It's more that I am right in thinking that, isn't it? It's not just a simple haunting by his dead friend. There's more going on there. Yes. Even that seems to be tinged in the final analysis by desire and by this extreme physicality. Yeah. And I think some of that was playing with, you know, the Gothic back to our horror traditions, like blood Mm -hmm. as a thing that we think of blood, both in terms of 
relatives, like your blood relatives, but also in terms of legacy. And then there's another tier at which, you know, you're, I'm writing a book about queer men. Blood has a particular salience. Also, I think in American culture for queer men in terms of HIV AIDS pandemic. So that sense of blood being almost an infectious thing, but also a desirous thing, but also what keeps us alive, but also what might kill you. There are all of these very complicated emotions attached to it. And part of that haunting is a blood haunting in a sense that it mm-hmm. is about historical legacy, but also a semi-sexual or erotic intimacy that comes from blood. And I also think just if, I don't know how common this is cross-culturally, but like swearing blood brothers with someone, like as a teen, you know, you cut your hand and shake hands. There's that too. There are all of these things that are feeding into that sense of what is a haunting. And it all comes down to what have you inherited through blood in a sense but the haunting itself is much older than those things. Because in thinking about land, I also kind of wanted to give a nod to the fact that anyone in the U.S. is living on stolen land. It's a settler mm-hmm. colonial state. So if you're going to play with the idea of an ancient force of some kind that's sort of amoral, that is doing its own business, which I think is what the haunting is doing in this book, you sort of have to deal with not implying that that is somehow connected specifically to a Native American culture. And so that was something that I was also thinking about was sort of pre-origins of these curses, if you might. Like, horror is very political. You got you to gotta unpack all those things. <laughs> yeah, just the other, the other week I was speaking to Stephen Graham Jones, who um, we, we were both talking about how possession narratives really scare us. And I was just saying, you know, I was kind of, going on about in my inarticulate way about why they scare me and Stephen Graham Jones told me that they scare him because a possession narrative is essentially a colonial narrative Ooh. and I was like oh that I that is good I'd never thought about that but of course you know Stephen's a member of the, the Blackfeet tribe and so for, for him the idea of autonomy being taken away and and you know you being taken and physically inhabited it's just a the, the ultimately condensed metaphor for what happened to his ancestors. And I just think mm-hmm. stuff like that is why I like horror. Yeah, it, it makes it very real. I think mm-hmm. to some extent horror lets you literalize these big, spooky, overarching stories about history and intimacy and relationships and lets you feel a way about them. <laughs> Indeed. Well, I think if it's okay about you, we'll, we'll, we'll end it there because we've we've kind of gone as far as we can without spoiling things for people. Um, I have two questions that I always end on, if you're happy to answer them. Yes. The, the first is quite simply, could you please recommend a book for my listeners and tell us why? So I'm going to guess that potentially the episode you were just recording was about My Heart is a Chainsaw. So I'm yeah. not going to say that one, even though I just read it and it's phenomenal. So take that as a half recommendation. So I'll make my second recommendation. Uh, Sam J. Miller's The Blade Between. It came out at the end of last year and is a gentrification horror haunting novel uh, that I think really does a lot of similar vibe things to Summer Suns, but looking instead at uh, sort of the coast um, up in the Northeast and thinking about gentrification and community coalition politics and queerness. And it's also very scary, like genuinely upsetting. <laughs> so that one would be my recommendation. 
Well, Sam came on the show to talk about it. And um, <laughs> and I'm just now remembering that he's the person who said about queer villainy. Um, so, yeah, that's come, that's neatly come full circle and, and tied nice. off that, that messy end. But, yeah, that's a great book. And I, I hadn't thought about it, but I can completely see connective tissue between that and Summer Sons because they are both about, as you said, kind of different kinds of haunting being literalised. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great book. And, yeah, tell me, did you like My Heart is a Chainsaw? Yes. <laughs> Yeah, it blew my mind. Like the the way it goes from being this kind of flippant exercise in in fan service to being this emotional kick in the balls at the end is ju- yeah. It's, yeah, it's it's incredible. I just finished drafting a review of it actually, and that's will come out soon, hopefully. But I very much loved it and how it deals with parenting, even though it's a book about a teen, really got at me. It was good. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Um, lastly, the last question. The best question, what truly scares you? So I am kind of scared of heights, but the very specific thing is staircases that are either completely see-through, not sure who in the design (laughs) world thought that was a good idea, or the ones with very large gaps that you could easily step through and die. Uh, That just fills me with fear. I will freeze on them like a scared dog and just shake. I can't do it. Seems perfectly reasonable fear to me. I've, I've never encountered a see-through <laughs> staircase. I count myself lucky. I'm not scared of heights, but I've taken real umbrage at these people who've started building swimming pools that have nothing underneath them. You know, like between skyscrapers oh, and yeah. stuff like that. Just, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> it should just be banned. Just, yeah. No. Yeah, that, <laughs> that seems fair enough for me. Listen, Lee, thank you so much for your time. And thank you for writing this book. I feel like it's going to be a book that's going to set a thousand master's thesis on fire. You know, people are going to be reading it and comment on it for quite a while. It's so rich. But for now, all I can say is, Lee Mandelo, thank you for talking scared. Thank you so much. Okay, so Summer Suns reads like William Faulkner, Bruce Springsteen, Brett Easton Ellis and Donna Tartt got together and wrote a ghost story. And if that doesn't sound like a good thing to you, then, well, I'm not really sure we can be friends. We can try, but frankly, when it comes to the boss or Donna Tartt, it's them or you. (laughs) I'm not going to say this book will delight everyone. I'll be honest, at times it frustrated the hell out of me, largely because of that issue with the main character just being a destructive wreck of a selfish arse. Your mileage may vary. But, and it's one of those big buts, the kind that we cannot lie about liking, (laughs) since closing Summer Suns about three weeks ago, I've thought about it at least once per day. It grows on you like some weird vine, itchy at first, but slowly colonising you and shaping itself around you. Strange, elaborate metaphor, I know, but it, it fits, I think. Speaking to Lee in particular made me reconsider my annoyance at his character's actions and and I reassessed him with more empathy. And once you realise that this is a novel about a haunted young man in pain and uncomfortable with his place in the world, well, his behaviour becomes something you can see the meaning in and, and find some redemption in, however delayed that payoff may be. Plus, Lee has put together some of the most luscious prose, Every sentence is a dense jewel of a thing, which can actually make it hard to get your head round at first. Like I said, this is not a book to be read casually. 
And actually, I can't recall the last time a book kept me on my toes quite this much. Actually, I can recall it was probably Jeff Vandermeer's Salamander Hummingbird. And with Summer Suns, I had to bring all of my critical faculties to bear, both whilst reading and during the conversation with Lee. It was nice, I'll be honest, to talk about PhD with someone else who wasn't slowly losing their mind like I did. And, and good God, you can tell Lee is super smart. I mean, I was racing to keep up. Half the time, I couldn't even think about the next question quickly enough because I was still trying to process his last answer. The edit button is my friend. <laughs> Honestly, the amount of awkward pauses in this conversation that I managed to take out. It's also the second week in a row that we ended up talking about class in quite some detail. It's becoming a theme, I'm happy to say. And it's interesting to see how that topic both differs and overlaps between the US and England. And I say England, not the UK, because our Welsh, Scottish and Northern Irish cousins have at least a little more sense when it comes to the classist bullshit that we preach here in England. Um, Calm, Neil. But anyway, yeah, the theme of a diverging society with different tiers, it scars both Summer Sons and last week's Call Me Mummy alike, despite the fact that they couldn't be more different in, in story and content. Both books revel in this idea of establishment versus everyone else, and they leave me sitting here quietly fuming deep in the everyone else camp. That said, I realise that I did mention that I used to live in a castle, and let's face it, that needs to be addressed. <laughs> yeah, I went to university in a town in the UK called Durham. Um, it's up in the northeast near Newcastle. UK listeners, stand down. I know you know this. Anyway, whilst I was there, I shared a literal turret with none other than the Crown Prince of Luxembourg, who on the first night taught me the last ketchup dance. And the surrealism continues from there. I had to wear a full tuxedo twice a week for dinner, and we ate that dinner in the actual dining hall where they filmed the Harry Potter movies. Oh, and we had a ball at the end of term that women literally couldn't attend unless they were invited by a man. So yeah, I'll leave that there and I'll tiptoe away before I, I die of malignant hypocrisy. <laughs> I adored my time at Durham will live forever in my memory as a wonderful place to be. But I look back now with a blend of loving nostalgia and dull self-loathing. Thankfully, I was the token poor kid who wandered around wearing a t-shirt that simply said, Northern. So that's my get-out for four years spent courting the establishment. Ooh, I feel like I've purged myself there. If anyone's still listening after that, thanks for yet another free therapy session. But back to books. I mentioned a few campus novels at the start of the conversation. I said that, you know, there's not enough horror set on campus, which I find weird. One of the books I did mention, The Secret History by Donna Tartt, you'll all have heard of, if not read. It's actually one of the few books I've ever actually truly read in one sitting. What a great day that was. If you like that, I'd also like to recommend both The Lecturer's Tale by James Hines and Black Short by Christopher Yates. They are both these weird black, pitch black satires of academic life, and they're both great alternative campus horror novels. Can you think of other academic horror fiction, though? I don't mean M.R. James and that stuff. I mean modern, contemporary horror novels set in universities. There should be more, because the, the potential for darkness 
in these places is so rich and ripe. If you can think of some, let me know on Twitter at TalkScaredPod or email me direct at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. I also announced just yesterday that I'm going to start a TikTok. I've no idea why, how, or if it's anything but the worst idea in the world. I won't be dancing, I promise you that. Although I say that now, but then again, I am a man who set up a podcast so the world could hear him talk about horror books. Attention-seeking kind of comes with the territory. Let's see where it goes. (laughs) Patreon members can get extra bonus episodes as well as a slew of other stuff, including access to the exclusive Talking Scared book club on Novelic. Um, You can download that for free, as said in the ad, in the interview. Um, Current Patreons, look out for a new bonus hour of content dropping over the weekend. Anyone else who wants to sign up, you would become the lifeblood of the show and become first in line for one of my organs, if and when I die. If that appeals to you, you can click the link in the show notes or go straight to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. A huge thanks to the latest sign-ups, Lisa and Jocelyn. Welcome, welcome. You guys are the absolute best. Pick an organ you think you're most likely to need in the future. I'd avoid my kidneys. Otherwise... That's it for this week. I'm back next time with the first episode of Spooky Season featuring none other than James Han Matson and his novel Reprieve, a social issues horror novel that's getting loads of buzz. It's set in an extreme full contact escape room. Come on, how good does that sound? Until then, pedal to the floor, detoxify your masculinity, cite your sources and get your homework in on time. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.